What are the newly re-elected police and crime commissioners' plans for tackling rural crime? I think it's making sure that we've got the right dedicated resource and the Chief Constable has uh, supported me in this by saying we will have a dedicated rural crime team. BCC Mark Jones joins us today and we'll discuss robot milking. How does that work then? Essentially, um, you're milking the cow in the same way as we do in a parlour, using the same basic equipment. The robotic milking system is doing all of that, but without the intervention of a human being. More from Simon Redfern from Fullwood Pack Out shortly, plus Sean with agronomy, Kit with the markets, and a look at the week to come's farming weather. The Week in Agriculture. This is the Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Good morning. Hope you've had a good farming week. I'm Steve Orchard. From the news this week, well, the likelihood of a free trade agreement with Australia has taken most of the headlines. The government's been urged by the RSPCA not to betray its commitments by sacrificing farm animal welfare standards for a quick trade deal with Australia. It warned that the country had lower legal animal welfare standards than in the UK, including barren battery cages for hens and chlorinated chicken. Australia also used growth hormone treatment for beef and livestock journey times of up to 48 hours without rest. The UK government is currently looking to stop live exports and significantly reduce journey times. In addition, because production methods in Australia can be cheaper, flooding UK supermarkets with cheap Australian imports would put UK farmers' livelihoods at risk. As ever, we await the detail of the proposed trade deal with Australia. The Livestock Auctioneers Association, the LAA, says UK markets should continue to operate on a business-only basis and follow current biosecurity protocols. It comes as some restrictions were eased from last Monday and now the LAA has confirmed that auction market cafes and canteens are able to resume service but only at the discretion of the market operator. You have just days to submit a claim under the Countryside Productivity Small Grant Scheme. Grants of between three and £12,000 are available to farmers so you can invest in new and innovative equipment such as livestock monitoring cameras and precision farming technology, items that aim to help farming businesses save money and boost productivity. But time is running out as the third round of the grant scheme is set to close for claims on the 31st of May. And poultry keepers have been asked to remain vigilant after the avian influenza prevention zone introduced last November was lifted last week. Bird keepers need to maintain strict biosecurity measures on their premises, said the UK's chief vet. Now, recently we talked about lameness in cattle and touched on the subject of robotic milking. I've had several requests to know a bit more about the subject. So joining us this morning is Simon Redfern from equipment manufacturers Fullwood Paco. Good morning, Simon. Firstly, what is robotic milking? Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So robotic milking is essentially um, you're milking the cow in the same way as we do in a parlour, using the same basic equipment, um, a vacuum pump, a, a cluster, usually a milk meter in the middle there somewhere. The robotic milking system is doing all of that, but without the intervention of a human being putting the cluster onto the cow's teats. So the attachment and the, and the cleaning, the preparation, all of that is being done by robots. Can the whole thing then be centrally managed and integrated into other systems and all that? Yeah, absolutely. So the advantages of, of robotic milking are that um, you can manage feeding, individual feeding much better. And cows require different amounts of milking at different stages of their lactation. So when they're early in their lactation and they're producing the most milk, it's good for cows to be able to m- be milked 
more regularly. Milking through robots is often referred to as voluntary milking systems. So what it means is that the cow that's just calved and she's producing a lot of milk can go to the robot three, four, maybe even five times in a day, whereas a traditional system, putting cows through the parlour, manually bringing the cows to the parlour, they would probably only get milked twice, maybe three times a day on a conventional system. Okay, now how does... That seems a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How does the cow know to go to the parlour or whatever to to be milked? Or or is it just an instinctive thing that it says, I'm full, all right, off I go? Yes, it's much the same thing. There is an incentive in that we give... It's like a bit of a sweetie to to kids. You know, kids, come come in, it's time for supper, you know, there's a sweetie or whatever. Um, And the cows, when they go to the robot, they get... People refer to it as cake... Um, which is uh, administered automatically in, in the robotic milking system. Now, Fullwood Paco have produced some new technology, I gather. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so the use of automatic uh, or, or robotic milking systems requires quite a lot in terms of layout of barns. So, you know, the way that they're installed in a barn is quite specialised, and what that means is a lot of extra cost. So what we've come up with is a way of essentially going back to a little bit of an older style, if you like, the cows being brought to a central location where several robots are located, and then they're milked twice or three times a day, much as they would be in a conventional system, with the only difference being the actual milking process itself is being performed by the robots rather than a person standing in the parlour. So what that means for the farmer is he brings the cows up to the milking parlour where the robots are, he then goes off and does all these other bits and pieces, his chores, his feeding, his cleaning, his bedding up, um, and the cows are happily getting, getting milk without any human intervention. And we're calling this automatic batch milking. OK, now that seems to sort of slightly go against what we were talking about a moment or two ago about the cows voluntarily coming in for mm-hmm. milking. They, you're actually almost reverting to a traditional way of them being brought up from the field into the parlour. Yeah, correct. There are different horses for courses, aren't there? So, you know, the voluntary milking system is something that people have seen um, very good results from insofar as cows produce a little bit more milk because they're able to go and be milked as and when they want to. And this generally results in an increase in yield. But as I say, the downside is that it does very often mean very, very expensive infrastructure, um, capital investment, um, which not every farmer is capable of doing. So... This is sort of bridging both sides, and it's also, uh, to a certain extent, answering current problems that, that people see in that there are less and less people, unfortunately, coming into the field of agriculture and particularly the, the livestock sector. Mm. So the, this almost acts as a, a sort of hybrid. Are you still able to offer voluntary milking solutions? So we've got the best of both worlds. Yes. I mean, the, the, system, the system that I'm talking about insofar as the, the batch milking actually employs just our... They are our um, normal robotic milking um, pieces of equipment, the normal robot, but arranged in it in such a, f- a fashion and, and with the addition of a, additional software and, and clever bits and pieces that they create, if you like, this centralised location rather than the robots being located in the barns where the cows live. It's the same piece of equipment, uh, base piece of equipment, it's just utilised and, and located in a different way. So this could be installed in an existing setup. Precisely, yeah. yeah. This this could be used to, say, replace an existing, you know, herringbone parlour or a rotary or, or whatever it may be. OK, I can see lots of advantages to this, but is this an expensive bit of kit? The quick answer is yes. 
you've got to bear in mind is that, you know, obviously there's a cost to someone being stood in a milking parlour or several people, um, in the case of some of the bigger units, being stood in a milking parlour, milking the cows twice or three times a day. Um, and the benefit in terms of doing that through a robotic uh, system is that in terms of repeatability, quality, everything else, all those things are much much better, much more ably managed than, than with that human touch. So that's one. Two, you save on the cost of that labour, so you need a lot less labour uh, for this type of system. Um, so over the course of, say, 10, 15 years, which one might expect you know, a system like this to be um, functioning for, um, the savings are huge as well. And from a, a sort of modern technology point of view, all this is integratable, if that's a word, into other farm management systems. I'm thinking of workflow, um, monitoring the cows and so on. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the, the number of cows wearing the equivalent of human Fitbits now is going up all the time. So we're able to monitor the, the behaviour of the cows, the health of the cows, the fertility of the cows, and that all ties into this robotic milking system so that you know farmer has a lot of the information he might need you know at the touch of his fingertips on it on his smartphone on a on a i can't think of the right word what's what are they called the um, tablet a tablet thank you yes <laughs> <laughs> on a tablet or on or on a you know office computer and he can very much sort of sit and and uh, manage the process and the flows through those media and one of the big things that uh, com- comes to mind whenever we talk about just about anything to, in terms of doing things differently or technology and so on is the welfare of the animal and sustainability. Now, how does it um, answer those questions? Yeah, those are good questions. And those, those um, aspects, if you like, of, of behaviour and, and health are very much at the forefront of what we, what we do. Um, in terms of the robotic part of the milking, I think these are, you know, tremendous aids to um, that process and the welfare of the cows. You know, it, work, it can work in both systems, both the batch, mil- batch milking and, and voluntary systems can work in conjunction with grazing. So it doesn't mean that cows have to be stuck in a barn all year. Um, but in terms of what we can monitor on the cows, I would say it improves the, um, the health and the, uh, the well-being of the cows. Um, overall because we have you know much better view of what's going on because a lot of milk processors now are insisting that cows are actually in the field for a good half of the year aren't they yes absolutely um and like i say you know the batch milking system is is particularly sort of almost driven to that because or, or answers those questions because what it means is that the cows are just coming up to the barla maybe once or uh, sorry twice or three times in the day rather than the voluntary system where they can come and go as they please but even the voluntary systems, as I said, you know, as long as the farm is set up correctly with a grazing gate, the cows can go to uh, grazing during the day when the, when the weather allows and, uh, and move pastures and all the rest of it, again, totally autonomously or, or you know, managed by the system. OK, and if somebody wants to find out more information about this, where do they go? Um, so they can, they can see some of the basic information on our website, which is www.forwardpaco.com and get in touch with us, and we'd be more than happy to help. All right, Simon, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the farming programme this morning. Thanks very much for having me. It's been great to talk to you. You can hear much more of that chat with Simon Fullwood, where we'll look at sustainability and animal welfare on the Farming Programme podcast.
Sean's here now with another week's timely agronomy advice. Good morning to you, Sean. Yes, very good morning to you, Steve. Just before I start my agronomy bit, I have something very important I need to say, and that is a very, very happy birthday to one of our listeners, Ruby Binnington from Keelby. She's listened to us since Sally Elkington was young, so you can see how long she's been listening to us. Um, she's the best baker. She makes the best fruit loaves, and it's a birthday. Now, I know it's rude to ask a lady her age, so how much do you weigh, Ruby, if you'll tell me next time I speak? Do you know? Have a wonderful day with the family coming round. I'm really open now said that that you actually know that and it's not supposed to be a surprise but hey ho it's your birthday doesn't matter does it so a testing week of weather hugely variable quantities of rain there's now a 41 mil difference between my recorded rainfall and one of my clients there's a 20 mil difference in the thundery downpour we saw around lincoln last week i took two mil potter hamworth 22 and a half mil um just up the road mile and a half up the road at branston mere 15 mil so all over the place this weather some of these very very heavy isolated showers we had destructive hailstorms which have stripped through some of the bean fields and pea fields and the forward um, sugar beet fields the other end of the field not touched at all by hail we've had thunder lightning fire brimstone great fun isn't it may 2021 but then again we did ask for rain and we've got it so just enjoy it so the wet and slowly warming conditions are really turning these crops green and lush as they suck up that nitrogen flag leaves poking out all over the place so that means t2 is upon us in those fields and protecting the flag leaf leaf two leaf three and the ear itself and keeping those leaves and the ear clear of disease means maximizing that green leaf area and therefore the photosynthetic capacity is going to be optimised and that will optimise output in turn and remember just how crucial those top three leaves and the ear are in winter wheat. In terms of final yield the contribution from light interception the ear contributes around 22% of the yield, the flag leaf 43% in wheat, leaf 2 22%, leaf 3 7% so that's 95% of the final yield is contributed from the ear and those top three leaves. Leaf 4 and the rest of the leaves and bits of stem added together give the other five percent in barley the horns and the ear give around 13 percent the leaf sheath and the stem below that ear gives around 25 percent but the flag's far less important in barley it only gives around five or six percent of final yield but leaf two gives around 35 percent leaf three below it gives around 20 to 25 percent so you can see that it's different leaves doing the job the flag leaf not as important in barley but leaves two and three much more crucial in barley than that flag leaf but it's Rhinchosporium, rust, mildews, ramillaria, all of those things give us concerns in barley, particularly in these weather conditions. And it's septoriatricity that always drives us in winter wheat, but yellow rust, mildew, all of those other diseases are likely to start enjoying these conditions sooner rather than later. Also, watch the cutoff timings with your herbicides and growth regs, as I keep saying. Speak to your advisor and keep yourself safe on those crops. Wild oats and ryegrass popping up now everywhere. I used to work with someone who called the end of May sticky up season and it certainly is this year it's also worth costing out that grass weed control because if it's just wild oats that can be a heck of a lot cheaper to control and if that's all that concerns you in the crop then just go with a cheap cladinophop type product for your wild oats it's when ryegrass comes into the equation it makes things a lot more expensive so do your sums and be sure that what you're spraying is actually out there in the field also now's the time by the way to mow out those areas of black grass before the plants flower and set seed because if you have to cut out areas of crop you may as well do some good by stopping any additional seed return by catching them before they flower and set seed 
Peas and spring beans grow in light stink. Very little to report in them, though. Winter beans, however, starting to set those first pods, so rust and chocolate spot programmes starting now. Very little in the way of aphid or brookid beetle. Remember, two by 20 degree days triggers brookid, um, and we can only dream about temperatures like that at the moment. Looking at the forecast, that sets fair for a couple of days yet. So a protective fungicide of straub or SDHI, etc. Cost them out. Strobilirin plus manganese plus magnesium may well suffice at this moment but speak to your advisor and get a plan in place sugar beet growing away finally most fields now showing full emergence other than those areas within fields that of course we lost to frost weed control very difficult and challenging this year but very effective when we do get it on in these cooler moist conditions because fine quality sprays which is what you need in sugar beet do not like windy conditions but making the most of every opportunity is the best way to proceed in any season and it really sums up this season so far and looks set fair to continue there too. Mysus persicae, I haven't seen any sight of those yet. Nymphs or even winged in my 3,000 acres odd of sugar beet. One aphid nymph pest per four plants, of course, is threshold. So walk across your field and take three or four isolated plots of 12 plants and assess them. If you find one nymph in four plants, that means treatment is justified up to the 12 leaf stage of the crop. And Mysus persicae, of course, have a huge number of host plants as well. It's not just beet you'll find them on. Weeds like chickweed, shepherd's purse, poppies, dead nettles, groundsel, pansies. So it's worth having a look at those if you see them. Um, also, just because it's a bug under the leaf, it's not necessarily a bad bug. I can find plenty of yellow mites running around under my leaves. They're about 25% of the size of a Mysus persicae nymph, which is generally green, reddish eyes, antennae on the head end, exhaust pipes or siphunculi on the, on the other end, and they are pretty sedentary creatures, lethargic, very slow-moving aphids, nymphs. But yellow mites are like mechanical dandruff scooting about on the back of the leaves even jumping they don't have antennae or siphunculi and they have very black little eyes and they're pale yellow so check on the leaves in the heart of the plant if you're looking for Mysus persicae particularly if it's windy or chilly like this or look in the folds of the leaf margins or definitely on the undersides of those leaves where it's sheltered so a very catchy week held up the spraying maize drilling's been faltering in these damp fields out there as well t2s on wheat's imminent t1s on spring barley's oats spring wheat's imminent too the cuckoos cuckooing the swifts are back the swallows are already hatched and are rearing the first brood looks far better weather for us next week i have a dream steve let's see what the next seven days bring thanks as ever sean sean sparling sparling agronomy services as almost 50,000 people signed an open letter demanding action on fly tipping, one of the scourges of rural Britain, let's welcome the recently re-elected PCC for Lincolnshire to talk about that and farm theft and hair coursing and rural crime in general. Mark Jones. Mark, firstly, congratulations on your re-election. You must be absolutely delighted. Thank you very much, Steve. I absolutely am. It's, uh, you know, a very strange thing standing for election as a way to... Uh, you know, seek employment because it's a very public way of having a job interview. And uh, believe me, it's not an easy thing. I know people often point at people that stand to election and, and, and think it's an easy ride. Believe me, it's not. And um, coming out of the other side of it is a, is a, is a great relief. 
and it gives me a mandate then to do even more for the community, which is the main thing. Most farmers that I speak to, Mark, appreciate the efforts of the police in dealing with rural crime. They feel the relationship with the police generally is pretty good. But obviously big concerns remain over the levels of rural crime. What's being done to attack that? What's being done to bring it down? Well, firstly, I I would agree with them that more does need to be done. And I think the police would absolutely agree with that, too. So nobody's disputing that fact. And I think that's the first point to make clear. So it's really a case of what are we going to do to make it better? And I think Lincolnshire is always going to be a target because of its large rural geography. And that makes it harder to catch people in the act. So first thing we need to do is try and prevent crime in the first place. And a number of things there, it's making sure that we work with our rural communities, our farmers, to say, is there more we can do to make sure that um, farm machinery, uh, for example, is registered in a way that means if it does get stolen, we can get onto it straight away to try and get it back. Use of trackers, those kind of things. We've had some great successes in getting farm machinery back when we've had trackers in place. So that, that would be my first thing. What can be done? Uh, at the owner's end of thing to actually prevent that but also working at a national level what can we do to get manufacturers to step up i'm still amazed that people can spend tens if not hundreds of thousands of pounds on equipment and yet it doesn't come with a tracker as standard you know we, we often see manufacturers using similar keys which makes them easy to steal but also i think it's making sure that we've got the right dedicated resource and the chief constable has uh, supported me in this by saying we will have a dedicated rural crime team formed. So we've, we've been providing them the right tools to do the job in the last few years. Now we're stepping it up even more and saying let's have a dedicated team Let's train people to the right bits of legislation to really bear down on rural crime. Is it resources? Do you need more officers? Well, what we've we've had is um, uh, an increase in the amount of funding, both from central government and through local council tax. And that has enabled me to provide more money to the chief to say, how many more officers can you provide us? And we've had record recruitment last year of 120. We're having the same this year. So... With people that leave and everything else, that will give us around 110 new officers that the chief can deploy. So for the first time, we've had enough people to say we can put more into a new roads team, more into response, and we can have a dedicated rural crime team too. One of the big, not complaints, but one of the the facts of life of Lincolnshire is that it's very rural, it's very spread out, which tends to make it a nice easy target for fly tippers, doesn't it? We've seen a national explosion in fly tipping and it's misunderstood. Some people are just lazy, out and out lazy. They'll throw things from their car window. They'll, you know, dump a a few bin bags or or garden waste in a lay-by and that's abhorrent enough. But what people don't necessarily realise is the levels of criminality that's quite organised that can go with it. And whether that is white van man, and forgive me, there are plenty of white van people who are perfectly lawful, but white van man who isn't quite so lawful, preying on people who will say, I'll get rid of that for you for 30 quid, 40 quid, no intention of taking it to the tip and residents don't realize that they remain liable for their rubbish if it's dumped even if they've paid somebody to take it away so we've got more to do with that kind of criminality but at the high end we see hgv loads dumped in you know farm entrances in lanes that is organized crime and we're working through the national rural crime network 
with the Environment Agency, with DEFRA, with others, to say, how are we going to tackle this, this national criminality around that? So there's a lot to do. And we have in Lincolnshire eight separate councils, all of whom are different, are, are responsible for different parts of waste disposal. And I'm trying to corral them, work with them together um, to do more. So we've, we've already set up an environmental waste group made up of all of those, the Environment Agency, ourselves, the police. And we really are going to make some efforts to bear down on this because it, it really does blight our countryside and indeed our towns as well when this happens. and It's just not acceptable. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for today. But part two of my chat with Lincolnshire PCC, Mark Jones, will be on next week's farming programme. Time to see what the markets have done this week. Here's Openfield's Kit Dickinson. Good morning, Kit. Well, good morning, Steve. A week has passed since the USDA report, which forecast record global production of wheat and maize and has resulted in prices falling sharply. There is some way to go before this can be assured, but the market appears to be happy to collude in the assumption for the time being. Adding to the negativity was the analyst's forecast of an additional 5 million acres of maize, which equates to 20 million metric tonnes. And whilst there may be an increase, we will not find out by how much until the next USDA planting survey update at the end of June. Where the USDA do not appear to have been as forensic is on the demand side, maybe preferring to wait for positive signs of more countries exiting lockdown before factoring in additional demand. This week we have seen major maize importers such as South Korea, Japan, Mexico and last but not least China all back in the market at lower prices. Algeria is back in the market for July wheat although with old crop stocks in the EU tight and potential for delayed harvest due to the recent rains and below average temperatures it is unclear where this will be sourced from. The price inverse from old crop to new crop has seen buyers run down stocks which likely points to pent up new crop demand. Looking forward to barley, recent weather pattern run has been supportive for the new crop across all regions. Old crop markets see focus on execution and fielding the odd inquiry for replacement loads here and there. New crop markets following the sparks of interest from brewers this week have been a little more subdued with nominal values easing back as the interest subsides and one or two more sellers appear with good crop progress. Further afield, French crop ratings released reflect strong gains following their recent run of weather, which has capped European values in the short term. Back at home, premiums remain largely unchanged as feed values have eased back. From now, the reopening of pubs and restaurants remains on course and should help underpin demand moving forward into the new crop. All seed rate markets are lower over the week as participants digest the recent news flow and outside trends. Veg oil markets look to step lower following crude oil values that have circulated of a possible lifting of sanctions on Iran by the US, allowing exports from the nation for the first time since 2018. The negative tone was followed up by a weaker print onto the soybean crush volumes for April. Recall domestic crush, a key part of the demand story for the US, which further dampened down the sentiment as better weather forecasts were also seen, with analysts suggesting an increase in the soybean plantings in the US. Closer to home, news from Germany saw an upward revision of their rapeseed crop to 3.62 million tonnes. That's a 3% gain from last year. Meanwhile, here in the UK, old crop markets remain all about the physical rapeseed that is available and values are very ad hoc. New crop markets have followed the futures lower under the weight of the recent news flow from the domestic crushes and they are keen to see these values fall even lower. So moving on to prices this week, feed wheat for May 200 to 202, falling back to new crop in August at 170 to 172 off the combine, November 173 to 176. 
February 176 to 179, and May 22, 179 to 182. Milling wheat premiums for new crop are in the region of 18 to 20 pounds. Feed barley for May and June 182 to 187, falling back to new crop off the combine August 151 to 154, November 155 to 158, February 157 to 159, May 159 to 161. Malting premiums are circa 20 to 25 pounds for new crop on a 185 nitrogen basis. Oilseed rape, very ad hoc for old crop June, as I previously said, but an indicative value would be £500 a tonne. Looking forward to August, 435 to 440, November, 445 to 448, and limited carry going forward to May 22 at 450 to 453. Thanks very much. Kit Dickinson from Open Field, back same time next week. The Farming Programme, five-day forecast. Some low pressure around this week, bringing some more unsettled weather, with some rain likely most days. Brisk southerly winds today, pushing 20 miles per hour. Rain from mid-morning through the rest of the day, highs at around 12 Celsius. Rain is likely to continue through the night and most of Monday. Southerly winds again, but lighter, highs staying around 11 or 12 Celsius tomorrow. More of the same for Tuesday, but the wind's veering to westerly and in the mid-teens MPH. We've got a wet Wednesday with brisk northerly winds gusting up to 40 miles per hour into a drier and calmer end to the week as the pressure rises, but more rain is likely next weekend. Well, that's it for this week. Next week on The Farming Programme, we're joined by Tenant Farmers Association Chief Exec George Dunn, looking at the latest news on the lump sum retirement plan from the government to encourage new entrants into farming. And we'll have part two of my chat with Lincolnshire Police and Crime Commissioner Mark Jones. I'm Steve Orchard. Until then, have a good week on farm.